0: where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Faceoff wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Nick Majuli, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast.
0: Inviolate. Free or safe from injury, that which is sacred and must be protected. I used to think this way about personal finance, that there were these inviolate rules, rules that must not be broken. This felt knowable. If I just stick to these rules, everything will be okay. My money will be safe. It will grow. I will never run out. This gave me a great sense of calm for a moment until I picked up Nick Majuli's book and he debunked much of what I thought was inviolate. Credit card debt is bad. Well, not always. Cutting your spending is the key, but it won't make you a millionaire. Max out your 401k, or maybe not. It turns out that a data-based approach takes many of these common-held beliefs and turns them on their head. So this might leave us a little disappointed, maybe leave us wondering if there's anything left about personal finance that is sacred, inviolate. Well, it turns out that there is one rule which Nick absolutely swears by, and he made it the title of his fantastic book, Just Keep Buying. Nick Majuli is the chief operating officer and data scientist at Rithold's Wealth Management, where he oversees operations and provides insight on business intelligence. He is also the author of, of dollarsanddata.com a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. His best-selling book is entitled Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Nick Majuli, welcome back to Earn and Invest. In the introduction of your book, Just Keep Buying, you quickly set forth your main hypothesis. It's not about when to buy, how much to buy, or what to buy. Just keep buying. Buying is it that simple?
1: It can be over a very long period of time. It can be in the short run. It's never that simple, right? Because markets crash, things happen. You'll un- some of your assets will underperform. So it's simple in the long run. In the short run, it's it's much more complicated.
0: I want to get to that as well as some of the great information in the book but before we do let's go to some background about you specifically tell me about the behavior your parents modeled for you growing up when it came to money and finances
1: I think the main thing I learned from my parents and it was always like more of a scarcity mindset and it's and I understand that because they didn't have a lot of income you know I grew up like lower middle to middle class depending on you know what what portion of my life right and so because of that, you know, I was always like, you know, one of the things I think about is like every time I go to McDonald's, I still order off the dollar menu, still to this day, even really? though my income's grown mm-hmm. a lot since I, you know, graduated college and like I'm making obviously a lot more than my parents ever made and but like I still order off the dollar menu at McDonald's cuz that was like when I was a kid I always ordered off the dollar menu, right? So I think those were some of the behaviors I saw. The other thing too that that I saw which I didn't want to emulate as much is like you know, both my parents have declared bankruptcy at one point or another. And so seeing that and one of those was because of, you know, the great financial crisis that was, you know, housing over leverage there. Another one was when I was six years old, they declared bankruptcy. So there was a lot of, you know, it's almost like literally the 10 year rule, you know, the bankruptcy falls off after 10 years, it's like literally 10 years after the first bankruptcy, the next one hit when I was like in high school. So and I didn't know even know this at the time. Like I knew about the bankruptcy from when I was six years old, when I was in high school. But I didn't know that my, for example, my mother gone through bankruptcy again, like when I was in when I was in high school, right? If I knew about the first one, so it was just like seeing this stuff happen and like kind of what not to do with money. That's like how I modeled. Like, hey, once I finally have a job and I have, you know, that's why I cared so much about this because I was like, I don't want to make those mistakes. Now I understand some of that was like they just didn't have enough income, and you can't blame them for that. But there were certain times when we did have a little bit more income, which I would say middle to, you know, I wouldn't say upper middle, but we were definitely middle class. And we didn't end up, you know, using that towards any sort of investment or anything like that. They didn't even think of it like that. They're just like, oh, I have more money. I'm just going to buy more stuff, right? Sports car, big screen TV, stuff like that, which ended up, we ended up losing all in the end. So those are kind of the ways I've, you know, my, I saw through my family's history.
0: What we're talking about, right, is financial trauma. In fact, you say my financial life after college was fraught with uncertainty and stress. A lot of people then would run away from personal finance. You ran towards it. Why did you choose to go into personal finance for a living?
1: I think for me, it was just realizing that, like, I need to figure this out and just not be afraid of, like, okay, well, like should I do this? Should I do that? And so i'm I'm one of these, you know, hyper optimizers where I'm always thinking about, like, Oh, what's the best way to do this? What's the best way to do that? And so, like, I overanalyzed every part of like my financial picture, especially when I was super young. Now, I I do much less of that. I still track stuff, obviously. Like, I can't get rid of that. I still have my Excel sheets with historical data, etc. But like, when I was like 22, 23, I was tracking everything. I was like looking at budget stuff, looking at this and that, you know. And I really wasn't a budgeter, like I not in a main way, because I, you know, I was very fortunate to have a, a higher income coming out right out of school. But like, I was still tracking, like, how much am I spending on food? How much am I spending on this? You know, not like as I, as if I would cut back, but just understanding it and like tracking the data for me was like a big thing early on.
0: You talk a little bit about overanalyzing. Do you think it served you?
1: Depends how you look at it. Like it adds what I call stress or, you know, you're overthinking stuff. But I think, I mean, in my particular case, if I wasn't like this, I wouldn't have written a book like this, right? So like it did serve me in the long run. In the short run, it doesn't serve you. So if you end up, if all this extra stuff you end up doing ends up leading, helping you in your career in some way, then yes, go ahead, stress about it all you want. But for most people, that's not true. And until you know, 2017, when I was about 27 years old, I hadn't written a single word about personal finance or investing, right? So it wasn't until then that I started to say, you know what, I've been thinking about this so long, I should write about it. And that was not the goal. I didn't I hated writing growing up. It was like my least favorite thing to do. And so the fact that like I went from that to like, okay, I'm going to start a blog is like if you had told me this, you know, I was in high school, I'd say, no, I hate writing. It's like my least favorite. thing. I love math, hate writing, right? So I always looked, I always knew I was going to be in data. I never, or data in like economics type stuff. I never thought I would be writing. That's, that's the part that shocks me of everything that's happened here.
0: Yeah, side conversation. But I find this to be very true. Like people hate writing until they have something they love and then they write about it. And it's so funny how many people like you come out of our school system thinking writing is anathema and end up being writers. And I think it's the question of, of finding what feels really purposeful and interesting to you.
1: Yeah, it's like, write me a thousand word essay on the scarlet letter. Like, no, I'd rather not, <laughs> right? Like, <but> okay, <laughs> yeah. r- write me, write me an in whatever length you want on like something you care about. And I guarantee you like more people would be writers. That's the problem is like our our school system does not encourage writing in the traditional way, right? Well, you don't say write about something you actually care about. We say write about this thing I want you to write about. And here's how you write. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's good to understand structure and you know how do you write an intro topic sentence and this. like That's great for someone who's never done anything. It's good to give structure. But like I never think about that. I'm not thinking, okay, this topic sentence works for this paragraph. And then I end it with this concluding. No, I'm just going and just flowing. And like if the logic flows... You're going to be reading it, not even realizing what's happening. There's people that write very differently from me that don't follow any of those rules, and they're even better writers, and they're very easy to read, and you can just never stop reading them as long as it's compelling, right? So I don't think the grammar and all that stuff matters as much. I think what matters is the idea and how you're logically linking the idea over time.
0: Let's talk about this idea of compelling writing. As you were writing this book, did you feel like you were being a contrarian? And was this on purpose?
1: I go into it, you know, I don't try to be a contrarian everywhere. I really don't want to be. I just say, you know, is this true? You kind of go back to this first principles thinking like we've been told something's true for forever and we can get into some of these quote truths later, but like you you hear it's true and I say is that actually true? Let's dig in and see. And there's times where I'm like I want something to be true. I want my confirmation bias to come out and it's just not true. Like I've been this has happened to me so many times. And it's frustrating because I'm like, I want this, like, I want this idea to be true, but it's not. And like, you have to be like, hey, like on balance, this doesn't look true. Like, I remember one of these things, this wasn't in the book. Talking about lottery winners, they say, Oh, lottery winners aren't happier after five years, they're back to the baseline. Actually, no, you look at enough of the academic research, they are slightly happier. Don't get me wrong, there are these edge cases where people's lives get ruined. I think it really depends on a host of factors. For example, how public is the money? How is your existing social system before? Like, if you didn't have a social support system, yeah, every person you're going to talk to is probably just out to get you. If you didn't have friends before, you're probably not going to have friends after, right? So, once you control for all that and look at it, On balance, most lottery winners are actually slightly happier after, at least have better life satisfaction, right? They don't have to worry about money. Like to tell me that that doesn't matter if you just never had to worry about money again, that's one thing. But like finding purpose, that still matters outside of money. But if if you could solve for the money problem, that's going to, for most people, only going to improve their life, right? All else equal.
0: So let's jump into solving for the money problem. You break the book up into two main sections, right? Saving and investing. Let's start with the savings. You say that most experts love to give you a percentage, like save this much of your income, save 20% and you'll be just fine. You start the book by saying that that's relatively unhelpful. Why?
1: Incomes are generally volatile, they're more volatile over time and especially once you start thinking of this at the household level, on an individual level, maybe not, you know, you get your, most people are working, you know, a W-2, nine to five job, their incomes will move slightly with time. It's mostly, you know, you know, they'll get raises, stuff like that, but they won't move too much. Once you think of it at the household level, and now you have two incomes, right? Historically, I think a lot of the savings advice came out of the era when it was, you know, one income earner, which was usually the male and the female generally stayed at home. And in that type of nuclear family, the one income earner, very stable. You can save X percent very easy, right? Now, when you have two incomes, incomes are shifting over time. There's volatility. Someone loses their job. This happens. That happens. I think it's much harder to say, okay, I'm always going to save 20%. <laughs> the example I give is I was making some level of income in Boston, was saving like 40% of my income, was saving a good amount. I moved to New York City, took a, a pay cut to change industries. And on top of that, my housing costs went up. I went from living with a roommate to living alone. So I saw my savings rate drop from 40 to four percent in a year, I bear. I was, it was basically around zero. I say I think it was around uh, roughly four percent, but I saw a huge drop in my savings rate. Now, let's say I had said, "Okay, I'm always going to save twenty percent." In Boston, I would have been overspending, and in New York, I would have been miserable. So it's like, what was better? try and just be flexible and save what you can and so like i think that is a better motto going forward because it's not a fixed rigid rule that you if if your life's very stable then yes you can say oh, i'm going to save 20% but i think there's going to be times when you're oversaving there's times when you're undersaving and so i'm trying to get rid of the guilt we have around money and a lot of that comes back to the savings rules and advice we have like there's going to be times when you can't save money you might even be not saving undersaving money where you're actually spending more than you're bringing in that's okay at times, you know. It's just the question is in the long run can you fix that and get into a net positive and then really start saving money? That's the that's the long-term goal.
0: There's an issue there, right? Because yes, setting up these expectations then can leave us with a lot of guilt and bad feelings. On the other hand, it helps us to have something aspirational. So when we're talking about savings, right? The other side of that is spending. So how do we know how much to spend? Like, how did you know how much you could afford to spend in Boston versus New York?
1: I mean, you can't, I mean, it's a it's a question of like, okay, hey, I'm I need to get a roommate. I'm living this, I want to live in these areas, right? I have my income. I have a rough idea of my income. Okay. Boston was relatively cheaper relative to my income. So I didn't really have to worry as much. I wasn't like, okay, whether my rent's $100 more a month or $100 less doesn't really change anything. I should just go and find you know a good roommate that I like, et cetera. Right? When I came to New York, I'm like, okay, I now need to live alone. Once you do that, and plus you're going just from Boston, New York, there's a premium there. But on top of that, once you go from roommates to alone, there's another premium. right? So I look at my income and say, okay, I can still cover this, but now it's much tighter. Now the question is like I wanted to live alone. I was older at this point. Kind of wanted to be more independent. I was like, I'm willing to see my savings rate drop dramatically to do that. Like I didn't want to keep living with roommates and into my 30s and stuff. And so once you start going through that exercise, you realize like there are times when you have to sacrifice and you have to make change. Like, for example, once you have a kid, it's going to cost more money. And to be like, oh, I need to save 20%. And so now my child's going to suffer because of my rigid savings rule. I think. Isn't the right way to look at it. So I would say, if you're really obsessed with saving twenty percent, find a way to raise your income. Stop worrying about the spending as much. Of course, if you're like, you know, out there just you know spending money like there's no tomorrow, that's one thing. But I don't think that's most people. I don't think the data shows that. That is not. Of course, we know we can probably name someone who spends money very badly, but like that's not most people. Most people, I think, are spending relatively well. The question is, like, it's their income that is the issue. And so, what can if if you want to save twenty percent a year, what can you do on the income side? What can you build over the next three to five years that can actually start bringing in enough income for you so that you can change that situation?
0: Kind of agreeing with that point, you also say that it's a fallacy that, or maybe even a biggest lie in personal finance. You say is that you can be rich by cutting your spending. Are we giving people bad advice because I've feel like, especially, and you know, I'm part of the financial independence, retire early movement. So everyone's talking about, you know, cut your spending, cut your spending, cut your spending. But you say that's never going to get you to a million dollars. Well,
1: not necessarily. There are people that have definitely done it, but I think they're usually the exception to the rule. Like, yes, if you go and live with a bunch of roommates or you live in a car or you like, there's a bunch of different sacrifices you can make where you can be like, look, Nick, I made it to a million bucks and or I made it to I got wealthy enough by cutting all these things. And yes, that's possible. But take the average person that's just trying to live, you know, in a home or live in an apartment, you know, trying to live a normal life without these extreme sacrifices. And spending's not the thing. And so if you actually look at it and the data I show is, you know... Do you know what's most correlated with savings rate? It's income. The highest income earners have the highest savings rate. And it's across that's been true across time. It's across every data set I've ever looked at. The highest savers, the highest savings rate generally have the highest incomes. Now you're gonna be like, well, I know people in the fire community that have 40, 50% savings rates. Yeah, how do they do it? They had to make extreme sacrifices on the spending side, right? To the point where like they can't go out. And maybe not do the restaurant they want to do as often. They can't do this or that. And so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being frugal. I'm not trying to attack frugality. I'm just saying for most people, that are most of the time, those sacrifices are much bigger than like trying to think about the income problem and trying to solve that over the long run. Right. Cause once you get that income thing moving, like, You're going to keep having those skills. You're going to keep having a business or that side thing or whatever you have that can keep bringing in that income. And that's the key. Like I use my blog as an example. I don't talk about it too much in the book, but like this is something that I spent basically three years on earning basically no income, almost zero. I had some like Amazon affiliates. I made like less than a $1,000 a year. So basically zero for three years. And then once my audience is big enough, I started running ads. I started doing a newsletter thing. And now this is a very significant side hustle for me where it's making up a good portion of my income. And it's one of these things where, yes, that took a long time. That took me three years. And I'm not saying it needs to take three years. I was just an example where I did something I loved. I found a way to monetize and then I went from there. Now, I've known people that have done that in way less time. I'm not saying that needs to be you, but I'm just saying, like, there are ways to monetize things you love. It just may take longer and you have to think about what's the path and then focus on that. So it just takes a lot of time. Like, 10 hours a week for three years, that's, you know, that's 1,500 hours. I put in 1,500 hours before I really started making money on the blog. So that's something to think about. I'm not saying everyone needs to be a blogger, but there are other ways to make money and raise your income that can require even less time than what I put in.
0: So the idea is to think more about income necessarily than saving or spending. But one of the few rules of thumb you do put in Just Keep Buying is the two times rule, which helps us at least maybe manage spending or get a hold of how much we could spend and be comfortable with. What is the two times rule?
1: The the 2x rule is basically this idea that there's too much guilt around a lot of our spending. So if you're still feeling, even with following all these rules, I say, save what you can, whatever, you're still feeling guilty about splurging on something. Let's say you want to go and buy yourself a nice pair of shoes, or you want to go and take a nice vacation, et cetera. If you're still guilting yourself about that, the rule that you can use is just save up two times the purchase price. So if you're going to spend, let's say, you know, $300 on a nice pair of shoes, save up double that. So $600, Take that other three hundred and either invest it in some sort of income-producing assets for your future, or donate it or something like that. You know, so you're donating to a good cause. So I'm basically trying to come up with a rule that would get rid of the guilt around spending. It doesn't work for everyone. Some people say I don't care about that. Okay, that's fine. But other people said, Wow, that actually works a lot. Like I did this. I put three hundred dollars in. You know, the, I bought three hundred dollars the S and P five hundred, and I took the other three hundred and spent on this thing. I felt way better than if I had just spent the three hundred on the thing. And so. I think that's the way to think about it. Is like, hey, half of this can be for present you, the other half is for future you, right? That's how I want to like you to think about these types of things. Invest in your future or invest in someone else's future by donating to a good cause, et cetera. There's a lot of ways you can do this to kind of get rid of your guilt.
0: By far, one of the biggest worries and concerns, especially people who come from my community, is that they'll eventually one day retire and run out of money. And that maybe drives some of this frugality and not spending. You say the exact opposite is true, that often retirees aren't spending enough. How did you come to this conclusion?
1: So there was some data that it's in, I think it's chapter two of the book where I talk about, you know, five and seven retirees are not even spending like the investable like gains in their portfolio. They're spending up to that amount and not even not even that amount right so when you really look at this this data like very few retirees with portfolios remember 40% of americans don't ha- even have an investment portfolio so they're just literally living off social security but of the 60% that do the vast majority of them are not even spending down their assets you know a small portion of them actually spend less than their their investments make so they're actually they're growing over time Another portion just says, hey, my investments earned me this much. I'm just going to spend that. And then a small portion actually do draw down, use things like the 4% rule. Now, the caveat here is these are all generally older retirees, people who you know have a little bit more of an estate. Like if you're an early retiree, that's a different game, I think, because you have so many more years to go, right? So and- you know i've actually written more on this sense but it's not really in the book because that's like a very niche topic but like if you're an early retiree i can understand the you know the fear of running out of money because you have a much longer timeline right there's much more uncertainty once you're 65 and you have like a nest egg yes there's uncertainty but there's far less in 30 years than there would be in 50 years right and just because of that i get that feeling of running out of money so I was mostly speaking to older retirees people who there's where there's just less uncertainty and you know that's the thing that that matters most right
0: you say in the book and I've heard this quite often is that spending actually declines in retirement on the other hand being part of the medical community I often hear about how we spend so much money in the last few years of life on medical expense, expenses and things Those two things don't seem to go well together. Like we spend less, but then all of a sudden we have a huge dump of payment right at the end before we die, which is true or are they both true?
1: They can both be true. And if you think about this in the aggregate, right, every year you spend about 1% less. This is for people who are retired, right? It's like, you probably don't need to update your wardrobe as often. If you own a home already, you probably don't need to, you're like, are you going to spend a lot on home repairs or you're just going to wait until, you know, your heirs take it over and they sell whatever they're going to do, right? There's a lot of little things that you might do in your 30s and 40s that you may not do in your 60s and 70s, right? And so once you actually add that up in aggregate, you can see spending declines. Now, of course, there's those people that hit the end of life where spending shoots up, right? But that's going to only happen like in each cohort, right? Like that's only a small percentage of people. So on aggregate, we're seeing that even though if you look, follow someone's lifetime spending, you might see that like kind of uptick at the end, right? Which would make sense. And that's that's also like to, to defend the point of like, oh, I'm saving all this extra money and why I need it if you actually look at the literature most of the people that are over that what i call oversaving right when it's like why well, do you have all this extra money they are worried about these like edge case medical conditions where they have to end up spending you know a few hundred thousand if not more in their last year of life or something just to like get by so that makes sense like right? it is a risk strategy if we had better healthcare or a different system in the united states i don't think we would see the oversaving behavior as much so that's generally it's not the bequest motive as much people do want to give money to children and things like that but i think most of it is is hedging the risk of a um adverse a really bad adverse uh, medical outcome so that that's what the the data shows and i probably could have put some of that in there but i i didn't for a host of reasons
0: yeah it seems like we have right a crisis in the united states of funding long-term healthcare right because that's where we're really Seeing a huge amount of spending, most of your spending in hospital and for major medical treatments is covered by Medicare or secondary insurance, which most people have at that point, if they have Mm -hmm. enough money to be worrying about their investments. But what isn't covered is long term health care. And we see a lot of elderly Americans needing that. And so a lot of this would be solved by a good long term health care Plan for the United States. We used to have long-term health care insurance. We still have it, but it's a lot less affordable than it used to be. But I feel that to be a huge struggle. Like if we could solve that problem, maybe some people could be a little bit less anxious about spending so much at the end of life.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: There's one last rule I want to talk about on the spending side and saving side. And I have to tell you, I I think this is one of those things that I thought was an inviolate rule. And you question this, and that is credit card debt. I've always been led to believe in all the personal finance circles I'm in, everyone kind of says that's maybe one of the most evil things out there. And you make the point in your book that maybe not. Tell me why credit card debt isn't always bad.
1: I mean, for the record, it generally is for most of the people most of the time. So this is a very, this is a very nuanced argument. But this argument is basically like, imagine you're in a situation where you don't have high income. You know? And you're worried about like some sort of future expense, right? So the question is, why would someone hold credit card debt while when they have enough money to pay it off? Let's say you have a thousand dollars in your bank account, you have five hundred dollars in credit card debt. You know, you and I might say, well, why don't they just pay off that five hundred dollars, given this, you know, twenty five percent interest rate or whatever, and then just have five hundred in cash? And the reason is maybe they need that liquidity, maybe they need something else. You know, they need that that little bit of wiggle room. And so when you look at something purely at the interest rate level, I don't think. Like a high interest rate is bad, don't get me wrong, but it's only really bad when the balance is very high. So if you keep using that credit card and get deeper and deeper and deeper into debt, yes, it gets very bad very quickly. But for someone that has a low balance, like having a credit card as like a backup emergency savings on top of if you don't have emergency savings yet. I think it can save people. And so I've seen this just even within my family where they have credit card and stuff. And they like, yeah, my mom's like, at one point, I was, you know, a couple grand in credit card debt, I got out of it. But like, you know, without that, I wouldn't be able to get money, right? Because you can ask family, but that's tough. You can try and do these these payday advances, but that's tough too. And so she knows kind of what that's like. So I'm not completely against credit cards. I do agree for most people, most of the time, it's not the solution. But for some people, some of the time it is the solution. And so I think having that as an option is better than not having it just like with the payday advances. I don't, support these companies. But if I had to out, would I outlaw them or not? I would not outlaw them because that was sometimes how like my mom got money to pay for something. And I didn't know this. I only found this out later, but like, oh, we need to pay the internet. We need to get food tonight. She would have to sometimes do that. And that shouldn't do it too, too many times, but she sometimes had to do that. And to, to realize that liquidity matters to kind of keep your life going for these lower income communities, I think is really important. So trust me, I don't support credit card debt. I don't encourage people to have it. But there are cases where it might be necessary and it's something that you might need to take on. So just just keep that in mind. Like if it's if you're going through a time where you're like, I'm in a rough patch where I have some credit card debt, like that's okay. You have to, but then you have to be very serious about how am I going to raise my income to get out of this. Like that's the part where you have to do the work. And if you're not willing to do that, then you can be in a very tough spot.
0: We are talking to Nick Majuli. He's the chief operating officer and data scientist at Ritholtz Wealth Management, where he oversees operations and provides insight on business intelligence. He is also the author of of dollarsanddata.com, a blog focused on the intersection of data and personal finance. And we are talking about some of the inviolate and maybe not so inviolate rules of personal finance. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. usa.com. That's landroverusa.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com earn and get started. We are back with Nick Majuli. His best-selling book is entitled Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Nick, let's talk about the investing side. So, We've been spending time talking about the saving side. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is about investing. First and foremost, talk about the general trends of most markets in general, the U.S. included. And I want to caveat this by saying why whenever everyone brings up the Japan example, that that shouldn't inviolate everything else you're about to say.
1: Yeah, so... Most equity markets, at least over the long haul, tend to go up. Of course, there are exceptions. I Trust me, I know them probably better than most people listening to this because I know, you know, I can say, you know, Greece since 2008, Russia 2022, like Japan since 89, you know, Spain 73 to 83. Like I can name every terrible market out there. Like I know them very well. And there are periods where markets go through very horrific events, but generally over the long term, like equity markets tend to do well, right? And so and this is, I think this is generalizable to most income producing assets, right? Bonds are a little bit of a different case because of interest rates and things. So I, I don't want to get into the complexities of that. But for most equity risk-like assets, which is m- most of the stuff I encourage people to purchase and own over the, for the long term, they tend to rise with time. And not just because like obviously inflation, so things will nominally move up, but even in real terms, like the real return on most, you know, developed equity markets is four to five percent. US has been seven percent. It's obviously been an outlier. And I know I use the US a lot in the book, but that's just because there's more data. And so it allows me to dig into the data a little bit better, but I agree it's been an outlier. Even if we use, you know, the rest of the developed markets that we have, we do have like good evidence of like an actual equity premium that's building wealth over the long haul. And even you're saying, well, four percent is not a lot, but it's like, That's four percent real return. That is like I know that doesn't seem like a ton, but like that is real return. That is like a purchasing power growing. That is incredible, you know. So when you include a little bit of inflation, you're looking at you know six to seven percent, right, nominal, right? Which is it's still great. You know, the U.S. has been about ten percent nominal, but that's because of you know a little bit of inflation as well. So that's the thing. Over the long haul, these things tend to rise, and so like my whole my whole thesis is predicated on over a 30 year time period a you know let's say like an 80 20 like global stock let's say 20% us bond just for practicality over a 30 year period an 80 20 global stock us bond portfolio will produce positive real returns of on the order of let's say 3 to 4% maybe more right so that's that's the goal if you can get 4% a year Real return over a long time periods. That's what I aim for, and that's what historically has happened. And I'm I'm using all these other markets that have, and I'm trying to kind of create a basket of these markets that haven't done as well as well. And that's kind of what we see. And so that's the the main premise of the book. It's not okay. You're going to get seven percent a year by investing in the S and P 500. And don't get me wrong. A lot of books make those arguments and say you put in a little now, you'll be a millionaire. And and that's inspiring for people, at least it gets them to do the right behavior. If you have to kind of like you know, I don't want to say lie. It's not lying, but I think it is very, you're setting very high expectations. Like for me to assume that the U.S. is going to keep compounding at 7% real for the next 30 years, I would say that's unlikely. Not just because like, yes, it's done that for the last 100 years, but I'm still like, what is the average across the world? And what's like the equity premium we would expect? And for me, that's, I use 4% real. I try to use that every time. And I think that's a fair estimate. And I think it's a conservative estimate. If I'm wrong, we're all going to be very rich laughing about how stupid I was. If I'm right, then you'd be like, wow, that was actually a good, a good call
0: markets like Japan which had a prolonged period of being down shouldn't necessarily dissuade us and in fact maybe even for the people who are going through that market it may have not been as horrendous as it could have been if they followed your advice from the book right this idea of just keep buying would mitigate that
1: yeah so if you look at a snapshot like if you would put all your money into the Japanese stock market in you know late 1989 you know you a lump sum everything you owned Yes, you would have had a very terrible experience. But how many people did that? Very few investors would have done that. You would have been buying over time, right? Because you're probably accumulating assets over time through your income and and various ways that you you make money. And you're going to be buying over time. And so if you actually look, and I use that there's a chart in the book on this, if you've actually been buying into the Japanese stock market starting in 1980, which, you know, that gives you a little bit of leeway to get into the bubble, starting in 1980, there's a lot of periods where you're actually up, like you're above your cost basis, where your account value is above what you put in, right? So on a a snapshot, we do like to look in snapshots because it's really easy to run that math. I can say the price was X here, the price is Y here. What's the difference? That's your return. Very easy to do. What's harder to do is say, okay, what if I had bought it every single month along that path? What is my value? And so because that's harder to do, you need to use an Excel file or or a program of some sort and run those numbers. Most people aren't going to do that. They're just going to look at snapshots. And so I think snapshot thinking is one of the biggest problems with all the anti-investment crowd or the, oh, what about Japan? It's like, yeah, Japan had a very bad snapshot. But if you actually have been buying over time, it's a very different experience, especially those who were buying in the 90s because that Japanese stocks have since come back. And so don't get me wrong, it still wasn't the best experience, but just the fact that you can kind of retain your purchasing power in arguably one of the worst equity markets of all time is is i think a good sign you know and that's not going to be true everywhere Greece that's that's definitely not going to happen right Greece has not had that turnaround hasn't had that big comeback other markets haven't but most markets will perform well and that is that's the main premise here
0: so let's talk about how specifically we invest the theory behind just keep buying is actually another way of saying that is dollar cost average right over years you make the money you put in the market You buy in times where the market is overpriced. You buy in times when the market is underpriced. You buy in times when the market is just right. But over time, that grows and you will continue to do well. That's different than this idea of, I have $10,000 cash today. Should I invest it all at once or should I hold some of it back in dollar cost average over time? You give a very structured argument to how you should do this so what should we do if we have a lump sum of money should we dollar cost average or should we put it all in at once even if maybe we're at the top of the market
1: like so generally on average like lump summing is the way to go now when you said if we're at the top of the market like The problem with that is that assumes that there's gonna be a decline, right? If you already know there's gonna be a decline, of course you don't, but you don't know that, right? And if you actually look at people who like buying at all-time highs, and I've written on this, I didn't put this in the book because it's such a like a nuanced, you know, niche topic, but like Buying at all time highs is just as successful as like buying at other, any other point, right? Like the future returns aren't that different. It's not like, oh my gosh, if I buy at all time high, the probability of me having a worse return is bad. No, bull markets tend to run for a while. So, if you as soon as we hit a new all time high, that's generally bullish. Like that is a bullish signal for the most part. Of course, that is it's bullish, 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 bullish until it isn't. Right? Until so, it isn't, yeah. Right, and so it's like how long will that run for? And it tends to run longer than people think, right? So the main thing to think about, and I once again, the the thought experiment I used in the book is imagine I, I gave you $100,000 to invest, right? And imagine the so year 1900. So it's like, you know, it's actually $100,000 in 1900 a lot of money. Would you rather have invested all that money in 1900, right? In like just a basket of US companies, right? Railroads, whatever it was. Or would you rather put $1,000 a year into US companies over the next 100 years? Now, anyone... You know, that knows the historical day, knows the history of the US would say, of course, I'd put it all in right away, right? Over by waiting all that time, the inflation is going to destroy your money. And by the time you get invested, it's not going to be not to have grown as much. So, my my argument is if you wouldn't wait 100 years, you shouldn't wait 100 months, you shouldn't wait 100 weeks, you shouldn't wait 100 days, right? So, that is you can generalize that because what's happening over that 100 year period is generally happening on the micro level over a 100 second, 100 day. Like on average, this is true, of course, right? So, that's the thing. That's the argument I make. Of course, if you're like, Nick, I just really can't do that, then risk is the issue. And you probably should be slowly what I call averaging. And I don't like calling that form of buying dollar cost averaging because that's different than the dollar cost averaging I talk about in the book, which is just every time you get money, you're buying, right? Like you have, oh, I have some money. Okay. I have to use my spending, live my life, whatever. Any excess money I have, I'm buying, right? And that's the that's the idea of dollar cost averaging as I know it, as Benjamin Graham defined it, et cetera. So that's what I would say is like, if you're someone who got a big lump sum of money and you're really worried about putting it in right away, then I'm guessing the risk of your portfolio is too high. And so I would say, why don't you go to a lower risk portfolio by now? or if you're really still that worried then why are you at, if you're asking the question that is like you're asking the question and my arguments all the data I've shown you know 80% of the time you're going to be better off if you lump sum and I go through I don't just do this for US stocks I do this for a bunch of assets I even do this for stuff like bitcoin and stuff and like lump sum would have been far better than an average in method a slow buying process right over time so that's the main takeaway if all that data still doesn't convince you you know, take your time and, and slowly wait into the market. Because if all that doesn't convince you to do it, then I don't think this is the right strategy for you. And so there's going to be people that like, you know, you lived your life. You maybe you had a company, you just sold it for ten million bucks. This is every dollar you've basically made most of your life. Like, and you, yeah, you're worried about putting into the market right now. I get it. I understand. Then don't. Then I mean, there's no. It's the the real the the cost of putting it in over time are really borne by those that have like the longest. Period to put that in. Right. So if you put it in over a year, it doesn't really make a difference. Usually a 5% premium on average difference between lump sum and DCA. If you do over five years, it's usually like 5X that, like 25, 30%, which can be kind of considerable. You know, on $10 million, that's $3 million. So you think about what's the cost. So I would say the longer you're going to wait to average in, that's where that becomes a problem.
0: So if we're just looking at the numbers, you should lump sum it. That's when we're talking about buying. Talk about the other side with selling. We get to a point in our portfolio where maybe we need some of that money. Who knows? Maybe it's time that we're going to be drawing down. You say that you should sell slowly. Why?
1: It's the same argument in reverse, right? If this if this you know thing is trending upward over time, right? You want to sell as slowly as possible, buy as quickly as possible, sell as slowly as possible. Now remember, that comes from a framework of maximizing dollars, right? that also increases risk though right so if you're like oh my gosh i'm i'm so worried about what if i can't pay my bills throughout the year if i do this method then don't then sell it all at the beginning of the year whatever your payments you're going to need for the next year and don't worry about it right and that's even easier instead of selling monthly or whatever so like on the on the margin like think about the risk you're taking and that's where like all this is like okay you're trading risk for the possibility of downside for more money. And so whether that's worth it to you or not, is that extra 5% worth it to you? If not, then just sell now. It's not a big deal. Like, So that's why I would say like, just understand the trade-offs. That was the whole point of this. I'm not trying to tell people you have to lump sum, you're an idiot. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying here's what would happen if you lump sum typically. Here's what would happen if you averaged in. And same with if you lump sum sold or kind of sold slowly over time. Here's what would have happened on average. So pick which one you think is the better option. That's it. I can't give you the answer, right? You have to know yourself. Some people are going to be way too risk averse and they're going to buy slowly into the market and they're going to sell immediately, right? When they need to sell in the future. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but just understand the trade offs associated with that.
0: We've been talking up to this point about how you invest, the tempo of investing and the tempo of selling. Let's turn that around a little and discuss where you invest. I was taught that pretty much you should always defer taxes as long as you can. So the whole idea about the 401k is let's max out the 401k every year as long as we can. Wait and wait and wait as long as possible to pay taxes. You actually, when you're talking about your own trajectory, wish you had done a little bit less of that. I think you have
1: to think about what do you actually want out of life and then solve for that. So you're right, putting as many dollars you can to an after tax account is going to maximize your wealth in the long run. I agree with that completely. The downside of that is you have less flexibility in the medium term. And so what do I mean by that? Because I maxed out, you know, I was very fortunate to max out my 401k like starting in like my mid-20s and I did that through basically my early very early 30s. And then I kind of started analyzing the numbers and say, wait, why did I do that? I shoved all this money into this thing Want want be 59 and a half, right? Especially if you're someone who has, you know, a little bit more income. What if I wanted to retire earlier? Like what if I wanted to be a retirement person? I, you know, I have all these 401 K accounts that I'm not supposed to touch without all these penalties until this other future point in time. So yeah. So for me, I think the the big thing was like, you know, I cared about flexibility a lot. And so that means i put too much money into my 401k's very early on, right? and so in my, you know, mid 20s to my early 30s, i was putting too much into my 401k's and i only realized that now because i wish i had the flexibility to let's say, you know, put a down payment on an apartment in manhattan or something like that because those are very high and very expensive. i didn't know that was going to happen, so i just wish i'd been a little bit more, you know, open-minded to this idea because basically, you know, i'd say 10 out of 10 personal finance experts will tell you to max out your 401k, but I don't think that's the right solution for everyone. I think it's a it's a fine solution. For some people, that's exactly what they need. But for others, I would just say like, hey, let's think about this a little bit more. And so I'm just trying to open up the conversation. I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying maxing your 401k is a foolish decision. Like you're probably gonna be fine financially. I'm just saying, is that the right choice for you? Have you thought about what you actually want? If you know you wanna buy a home at some point and you're not saving anything or very little outside of your qualified you know, non-taxable accounts, then how are you going to do that? right? And so I wasn't thinking about that. I was just taking all the advice of everyone else, living based on that. And now I'm like, holy crap, I could have had all this extra money outside that I could have used for something that I actually would have enjoyed buying a house, et cetera, or apartment, whatever. But I didn't do that. So I'm just trying to get the conversation started around this. And I'm saying, what's the premium on that? What's that after-tax premium? And I've quantified it in the book. And so it varies based on a handful of things, but it's probably around you know 40 to 50 basis points at your point which means 0.4% to 0.5%. Now, that's not trivial. It's not like, oh, no one cares. Who cares? That's nothing. But like over a long period of time, that can add up. But I think for a lot of people, the question is, is it worth it for that extra little boost to give up all this flexibility? And I'm not so sure. And one last thing for the record, always go to your employer match. If your employer ma- is going to match 4% and you put in 4% or you have to put an 8 for them to match 4, whatever it is, Always get that match. That is basically free money for all practical purposes. So I always recommend that. But anything above the match is where we need to start thinking about that a little
0: bit more. So in the book, Just Keep Buying, there's a lot of information, a lot of talk of dollars and of data. You say that most people don't feel rich, regardless of their net worth. Why do you think that is?
1: I think what tends to happen with people is. Let's say you start doing well in life. Sorry, have a higher income. Maybe you live in a wealthier area. Now you surround yourself with people who are even wealthier, right? Like there's going to be some people in that community that are wealthy, and if not, maybe you're the wealthiest person in that community. Maybe you do even better, and you go to another community or you meet someone else. And, and so I've seen this happen in my life, where I went from a you know lower middle class to middle class area, right? That was my high school area. Then I go to college, right? And I had a very rare experience. I went to college with a lot of, I would say, wealthier people. So I got to see much wealthier people, right? So now I'm like, oh my gosh. I Before I felt like I was doing, you know, my family doing pretty well relative to everyone else because we were like middle class, lower middle, but then we got to middle at some point. So I was like, oh, we were doing like relatively well. And then once you meet people who are actually much richer, like, oh wow, we weren't really that rich at all. Like we weren't rich at all, right? And so you start to realize that. And then from those people, maybe you go and like meet an even more elite group of people. Right. And so you can keep doing that. Like you can always look and compare yourself to other people and you can always point to someone richer. The only person they can't is the richest person in the world, which is like, you know, and so like this is how someone and the, the example I use in the book is, um you know, the XCO of Goldman Sachs, uh, Lloyd Blankfein. And he was, he got interviewed and he's a billionaire, right? An actual billionaire. And he says, oh, I'm not rich. I'm just well-to-do, right? He's like, David, you know, he looks at it because his friends are David Geffen and Jeff Bezos. And relative to him, they have 10x or 100x his wealth. He doesn't feel that rich. And I get that. Like, I understand that argument. You're going to say, Nick, that's ridiculous. But like the the corollary I say is, OK, well, you know, the av- you know the, the, I think the top 10% in the world, like net worth is like $100,000 or something, right? So if you have 100K, you're in the top 10% in the world. I would consider top 10% relatively rich in any distribution, Right. And so you're like, but Nick, that's not fair, because you're comparing me to like these people who live, you know, other places in the world, third world countries, etc. That's not fair to compare me to them. Well, guess what? Lloyd Blankfein going to say the same thing about comparing us to him. He's gonna be like, I don't compare me to those, you know, middle classers and upper middle classers in the rest of America. You need to compare me to people like Jeff Bezos and David Geffen and all his friends, etc. So People are always comparing themselves like in an upward direction, right? They don't... Not everyone, but I'm saying that's the way they say, oh, I'm not rich. That that person's rich, right? And so because of that type of comparison, like I think a lot of people end up not feeling rich even when they're objectively very wealthy. And I think that's true even in most of America. I think people, you know, if you are born in the United States, you know, if you have a net worth of a million dollars, you are rich, like definitely rich. I don't care if you're 65. I don't care anything about that. Like you are rich relative to the world, Right. And you're gonna say, well, I don't feel rich because of this or that. And that's fine. I'm not saying you're going to feel rich. I'm just telling you objectively, like you are one of the rich citizens of earth, right? If you have a, a million dollars. So that's my argument there. And it's tough for people to swallow, but like that's, you just look at the the data on that. And it's like, well, how do you argue with that? You know, how do you say, oh, well, I'm not rich because of this or that. You're going to come up with ways just like Lloyd Blankfein comes up with his ways.
0: So, Nigma Julie, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. As I think about the question we started with, are there inviolate rules to personal finance? Maybe that's the wrong question. I guess what we really should focus on the fact is that there are data-based suggestions on how we can do things, and then we have to take that data and see how it fits into our lives and how we can use it towards our own benefit to live the lives we want to and to use money to help us do that. I want to end this episode the way and every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and specifically how people can get in touch with you if they want to learn more. So first and foremost, what is coming up next?
1: Uh, Don't have many big things coming up next. Still just blogging, doing my thing. I am thinking about writing a second book, but I have to spend a lot more time on that and figure out how I want to do that. And usually, like when I wrote the first when I wrote this one, I, I knew it just felt right. Like, I don't know why I just. The stars aligned. It was COVID. I was like, hey, I'm going to be trapped inside. This is a, this is an opportunity for me. I haven't felt that yet. But once I do, I think it's going to really kick me into gear. So that's the big thing. Where to find me? I'm on Twitter at, at dollarsanddata. or you can, that's my handle. Or you can find me at of dollarsanddata.com and my contact information is on there if you want to email me, et cetera.
0: Well, the book is just keep buying proven ways to save money and build your wealth. Nick Majuli, thank you for being on Earn and Invest.
1: Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: That's a wrap. Earn and invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. It was great to have Nick Majuli on again. As you remember, I recently had him also on an episode with Brandon Ganch, and we talked about the safe withdrawal rates. For my little soliloquy today, I wanted to actually talk about that episode. The reason why is, if you remember... Nick and Brandon had written an article that was for the Mad Scientist, and it was about safe withdrawal rates and how we may not be spending enough. This idea that if we take into account discretionary spending, and then we look yearly at how the market is compared to its peak, we can adjust up or down on that discretionary spending. And that can allow us an average safe withdrawal rate of much higher than 4%. This is something that we've covered ad nauseum on the podcast. What's really interesting and what I found interesting is over the last few weeks, I've been checking out social media and seeing people's reaction to Nick and Brandon's article. And of course, the reaction has run the spectrum. There's a lot of people who are for spending more, but there was a vocal minority. I'm going to guess minority here, but I'm going to call it a vocal minority, um, who the article really rubbed wrongly. They argue that we are struggling so bad right now with people and saving. And they say that that article could really give people the wrong idea, that they could try spending 5 or 5.5% safe withdrawal rate over long periods of time, and it could leave them bankrupt. And some people thought it was really even irresponsible. In fact, Big Earn, early retirement now, has a safe withdrawal series And he wrote an article specifically to debunk some of what Nick and Brandon had written. I don't want to go into the details of that, because what I've realized is data interpretation is data interpretation, and different people do it differently. And so Nick and Brandon can have one set of numbers, Ern can have another set of numbers. Both of them may have interpreted those numbers correctly, but they've come to very different conclusions. I guess what I want to focus on is this idea that it is true. There is a huge percent of the American population specifically that doesn't have a portfolio, that doesn't have a plan. On the other hand, and Nick mentioned this in the episode, when you look at the percentage of Americans who do have a portfolio, they're a lot more likely to die with extra as opposed to run out of money. And so I was trying to think, does this comport with what I've heard from other people on the show, other experts I've had on? And the truth of the matter is it does, right? I had Christine Benz on also to talk about safe withdrawal rates. I had Mike Piper on and we talked about more than enough and this idea that actually many people are dying with excess money and not spending as much on themselves as they could And then my personal experience, I just don't see a lot of people running out of money. Now, I guess that isn't 100% true. I see people who are not interested in finances, who don't save, who don't invest, who've never even heard the term safe withdrawal rate. I see a lot of those people struggling day to day with money. But the group of people who have portfolios, who listen to podcasts like mine and read The Mad Scientist and listen to Morningstar and Christine Benz and who read Mike Piper's books... The kind of people who do those things tend to be the kind of people who are very responsible with their money. They tend to, in general, from what I can tell, not spend enough. I know, it sounds crazy, but a lot of these people are dying with a lot of money that they're giving to charity or passing on to their heirs. And I guess that's fine, and there's nothing wrong with it. But we tend to be a really conservative group. So I know there are a lot of people out there who don't like articles like this. I know there are a lot of people out there who think that it's abusing the data and that we're putting people in harm's way. But that just is not the experience that I'm seeing out there. And so, yes, I'm a scientist. I believe in data and I believe in numbers, but there's lots of different ways to interpret those numbers. And I think when it comes to this issue, the safe withdrawal rate, we're going to have a bunch of people who interpret those numbers in different ways, and I'm not sure who is right. But I can also put my experience and the experts I know and the people I listen to. And when I put it all together... We seem to be overly conservative when it comes to safe withdrawal rates. I'll repeat that. We seem to be overly conservative when it comes to safe withdrawal rates. Now, putting that all together, does that mean I'm going to spend more? Well, I think my family is different than most financial independence families in the fact that we do spend quite a bit. Um, But am I going to be spending 5%? Probably not. And the reason why is. Spending 5% would just be so outrageously over what we spend now. I don't know if it would add to my life that much. But it does mean that all of us might be able to loosen up a little bit. Those of us who this podcast is written for, those of us who are part of the financial independence community, we are a self-selected group of people. And generally, by far, we are overconservative. conservative.
1: Period. Awesome. Thank you.
0: So anything we didn't talk about, anything you would like out there about the book or conversation in general, it's, it's impossible to cover everything in the book. There's so much yeah, good yeah. stuff there. No, I know. And that's uh, good. I, I don't to want give a to smattering. cover everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't
1: want to cover everything because you want to kind of leave a little bit of value for anyone who wants to pick it up. So appreciate that. You know, I think that was great. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff. Sorry, the one pause there. I'm guessing you guys will fix that or the oh, one yeah, yeah. part where I I'll messed up. I'll fix it yeah. all up in- I'm usually pretty good about it. But yeah, appreciate that. Appreciate you kind of spending the time to do this and reading the book. And I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So. Yeah. Just doing my thing out there. It's still so sell- I'm just surprised at how much like I thought by now, like it the would, sales would have fallen off like considerably. And they've they've slowly dwindled from when it obviously came out. But like, it's still selling decently. So I'm like, OK, I'm like kind of surprised by that. But hey, you know, I'm glad I'm glad it's it's taken, you know, five years of my life to put this thing together, basically. And I, it wasn't the plan when I started. But, you know, all this writing and eventually like, oh, wow, I can take this and here's my
0: philosophy on like money
1: now. So it's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it is a fantastic book, and for the record, what I said to you before we started recording, but now for the recording, I'll say it's, um, it's really hard not to write a Me Too personal finance book, and Just Keep Buying is not at all a Me Too personal finance book. Lots of great stuff there, lots of new data, lots of new interpretations. And I I have to tip my hat to you. It's really hard to find new stuff to talk about in personal finance. And that's why we have a lot of me too personal finance books that basically say, here's what credit card debt is. Here's Mm -hmm. what, you know, here's how you increase your credit score. Here's how you budget. Here's how you, et cetera. And there's nothing wrong. There's lots of people who need those books. Um, But Just Keep Buying really, I thought added a lot to the basic personal finance knowledge.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah. So that's, that's the goal is like, if I do another book, it's going to be even more novel than this. It's going to be like way different. It's either going to, it's one of those things where it's either going to flop miserably because people don't (laughs) agree with the premise or it's going to be like way bigger than this. And I don't know which one it is yet. And so I'm still debating that internally. Like if I don't end up writing, it's probably because I think the idea wasn't good enough or I couldn't really massage out what I wanted to, to make this work. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now.